0: This is the audio lecture for Module 5, let's begin, Chapter 3, Section 3, Powerful Empires of India. Northern India was often a battleground, where rival Rajas fought for control over the rich Ganges Valley. But in 321 BC, a young adventurer, Chandragupta Moira, forged the First Indian Empire. We know about Chandragupta largely from reports written by Megasthenes, a Greek ambassador to the Moiran court. He described the great Moira capital at Pataliputra, P-A-T-A-L-I-P-U-T-R-A. It boasted schools and a library, as well as splendid palaces and temples. An odd Megasthenes reported that the wall around the city was, quote, crowned with 530 towers and had 64 gates, end quote. Chandragupta first gained power in the Ganges Valley. He then conquered northern India. His son and grandson later pushed south, adding much of the Deccan to their empire. From 321 BC to 185 BC, the Moira dynasty ruled over a vast united empire. Chandragupta maintained order through a well-organized bureaucracy, like many of those before him. Royal officials supervised the buildings of roads and harbors to benefit trade. Other officials collected taxes and managed state-owned factories and shipyards. People sought justice in royal courts. Chandragupta's rule was effective, but it was a little harsh. A brutal secret police force reported on corruption, crime, and dissent, that is, ideas that opposed those of the government. Fearful of his many enemies, Chandragupta had especially trained women warriors to guard his palace. The most honored Moira empire was Chandragupta's grandson, however, Asoka. A few years after becoming emperor in 268 BC, Ahsoka fought a long bloody war to conquer the Deccan region of Kalinga. Then, horrified at the slaughter, more than 100,000 people are said to have died, Ahsoka turned his back on further conquests. He converted to Buddhism, rejected violence, and resolved to rule by moral example. True to the Buddhist principle of respect for all life, Asoka stopped eating most meats and limited Hindu animal sacrifices. He sent missionaries, or people sent on a religious mission, to spread Buddhism across India and to Sri Lanka. By doing so, he paved the way for the spread of Buddhism throughout Asia. Although Asoka promoted Buddhism, he also preached tolerance for other religions. Asoka had stone pillars set up across India, offering moral advice and promising a just government. Ahsoka's rule brought peace and prosperity and helped unite the diverse peoples within his empire. He built hospitals and Buddhist shrines. To aid transportation, he built roads and rest houses for travelers. He is known to have quoted to have said, I have banyan trees planted on the roads to give shade to the people and animals. I have planted mango groves and I have wells dug and shelters erected along the roads. End quote. So we have a very progressive leader for his time as a result of converting to a belief system that was noted in the previous lecture. After Ahsoka's death, however, Myra power declined. By 185 BC, the unity of the Myra Empire was shattered as rival princes again battled for power across the Gangetic plain. In fact, during its long history, India had seldom remained united for long. In ancient times, as today, the subcontinent was home to many peoples. Although Northern India shared a common civilization, fierce local rivalries kept it divided. Meanwhile, distance and cultural differences separated the peoples of the north and the peoples of the Deccan in the south. Adding to the turmoil, foreigners frequently pushed through mountain passes into northern uh, India. The divided northern kingdoms often proved incapable of resisting these conquerors. Like the gigantic plain, the Deccan was divided into many kingdoms after the decline of Moira power. Each kingdom had its own capital, with magnificent temples and bustling workshops. The peoples of the Deccan were Dravidians, D-R-A-V-I-D-I-A-N-S, with different languages and traditions from the peoples of the north. Over the centuries, Hindu and Buddhist traditions and Sanskrit writings drifted south and blended with local cultures. Deccan rulers generally tolerated all religions, as well as the many foreigners who settled in their busy ports. In the Tamil kingdoms, who occupied much of the southernmost part of India, T-A-M-I-L, trade was important. Tamil rulers improved harbors to support overseas trade, very similar to the Phoenicians in previous lectures. Tamil merchants sent spices, fine textiles, and other luxuries westward to, buy, uh, to eager buyers in the Roman Empire. And as the Roman Empire declined, Tamil trade with China increased. The Tamil kingdoms left a rich and diverse literature. Tamil poets described fierce wars, heroic deeds, and festive occasions, along with the ordinary routines of peasant and city life. Although many kingdoms flourished in the Deccan, the most powerful India states rose to its north. About 500 years after the Moiras, the Gupta dynasty, G-U-P-T-A, again united much of India, Gupta emperors organized a strong central government that promoted peace and prosperity. Under the Guptas, who ruled from about 320 AD to about 540, India enjoyed a golden age or period of great cultural achievement. Gupta rule was probably looser than that of the Moiras. Much power was left in the hands of the individual villages and city governments elected by merchants and artisans. a Chinese Buddhist monk who visited India in the 400s, reported on the mild nature of Gupta rule. Quote, The people are numerous and happy. Only those who cultivate the royal land have to pay a portion of the grain from it. The king governs without corporal punishments. Criminals are simply fined, lightly or heavily, according to the circumstances of each case. End quote. Trade and farming flourished across the Gupta Empire as well. Farmers harvested crops of wheat, rice, and sugarcane. In cities, artisan produced cotton cloth, pottery, and metalware for local markets and for the export to East Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. The prosperity of the Gupta India uh, contributed to a flowering in the arts and learning. Under Gupta rule, students were educated in religious schools. However, in Hindu and Buddhist centers, learning was not limited to religion and philosophy. The large Buddhist monastery university at Nalanda, N-A-L-A-N-D-A, which attracted students from many parts of Asia, taught mathematics, medicine, physics, languages, literature, and other subjects. Indian advances in mathematics had a wide impact on the rest of the world. Gupta mathematicians devised the system of writing numbers that we use today. However, these numerals are now called Arabic numerals because Arabs carried them from India to the Middle East and Europe. Indian mathematicians also originated the concept of zero and developed the decimal system of numbers based on 10 digits, which we still use today. But Gupta's time, India physicians were using herbs and other remedies to treat illness. Surgeons were skilled in setting bones and in simple surgery to repair injuries. It seems that doctors also began vaccinating people against smallpox, about a thousand years before this practice was used in Europe. During Gupta times, many fine writers added to the rich heritage of Indian literature. They collected the recorded fables and folk tales in the Sanskrit language. In time, Indian fables were carried west to Persia, then to Egypt, and then Greece. The greatest Gupta poet and playwright was Kalidasa, K-A-L-I-D-A-S-A. His most famous play, play, Shakuntala, S-H-A-K-U-N-T-A-L-A, tells the story of a king who marries the lovely orphan Shakuntala. Under an evil spell, the kingdom forgets his bride. After many plot twists, he finally recovers his memory and is reunited with her. But eventually, Gupta Empire India declined under the pressure of weak rulers, civil war, and foreign invaders. From Central Asia came the White Huns, a nomadic people who overran the weakened Gupta Empire, destroying its cities and drain. Once again, India split into many kingdoms. It would see no other great empire like those of the Mauryas or Guptas for almost a thousand years. Now let's shift our focus to how people were living within this empire. Family and village life that shaped Indian society. Most Indians knew nothing of the dazzling courts of the Moiras or Guptas. The vast majority were peasants who lived in the villages that dotted the Indian landscape. In Indian society, everyday life revolved around the duties and duties associated with caste, family, and village. The ideal family was a joint family, in which parents, children, and their offspring shared a common dwelling. Indian families were patriarchal. The father or oldest male in a family headed the household. Adult sons continued to live with their parents, even after they married and had children. A daughter would go to live with her husband, for example, and his family. Often, only the wealthy could afford such large households. Still, even when they did not share the same house, closed ties linked brothers, uncles, cousins, and nephews. A father was thought to have wisdom and experience, and he enjoyed great authority. Even so, his power was limited by sacred laws and tradition. Usually, he made decisions after consulting his wife and other family members. Property belonged to the whole family. The family performed the essential function of training children in the traditions and duties of their castes. Thus, family interests came before individual wishes. Children worked with older relatives in the fields or at a family trade. While still young, a daughter learned that as a wife, she would be expected to serve and obey her husband and his family. A son learned the rituals to honor the family's ancestors. Such rites linked the living and the dead, deepening family bonds across the generations. For parents, an important duty was arranging good marriages for their children based on caste and family interests. Marriage customs varied. In northern India, for example, a bride's family commonly provided a dowry or payment to the bridegroom and financed the costly wedding festivities. After marriage, the daughter left her home and became part of the husband's family. In early Aryan society, women seemed to have enjoyed a higher status than in later times. Aryan women even composed a few Vedic hymns. However, attitudes and customs affecting women varied across India and had changed over time. By late Gupta times, upper-class women were increasingly restricted to the home. When they went outside the home, they were supposed to cover themselves from head to foot. Lower-class women, however, labored in the fields or worked at spinning and weaving. Women were thought to have shakti, S-H-A-K-T-I, a creative energy that men lacked. In marriage, a woman's shakti helped to make the husband complete. Still, shakti might also be a destructive force. A husband's duty was to channel his wife's energy in the proper direction. Women had few rights within the family and society. Their primary duties were to marry and raise children. For a woman, rebirth into a higher existence was gained through devotion to her husband. Often, a widow was expected to join her dead husband on his funeral fire. In this way, a widow became Asati, S-A-T-I, or virtuous women. Some widows accepted this painful death as a noble duty that wiped out their own and their husbands' sins. Other women bitterly resisted the custom. Throughout India's history, the village was at the heart of the daily life. The size of villages varied from a handful of people to hundreds of families. A typical village included a cluster of homes made of earth or stone. Beyond these dwellings stretched the fields where farmers grew wheat, rice, cotton, sugarcane, and other crops according to the region. Each village included people of different castes who performed the necessary tasks of daily life. It ran its own affairs based on caste rules and traditions and faced little outside interference as long as it paid its share of taxes. A village headman and council made decisions. The council included the most respected people of the village. In early times, women served on the council. As Hindu law began to place greater restrictions on women, they were later excluded. The headmen and council organized villagers to cooperate on vital local projects such as building irrigation systems and larger regional projects like building roads and temples. In most of India, farming depended on the rains brought by the summer monsoons. Too much or too little uh, rain meant famine. Landlords owned much of the land. Farmers who worked the land had to give the owner part of the harvest. Often, what remained was hardly enough to feed the farmers or their families. Villages usually produced much of the food and goods that they needed. However, they relied on trade for some essentials, such as salt and spices, as well as various manufactured goods. People regularly interacted with others from nearby villages while attending weddings, visiting relatives, or shopping at marketplaces. This continual interchange was crucial in the establishment of common ideas across the subcontinent. Section 4, Chapter 3, Rise of Civilization in China the legend of Yu offers insights into early China. The Chinese depended so much on rivers for irrigation and transportation that they highly valued the ability to control flood waters and to develop irrigation systems. The legend also shows how much the Chinese prized devotion to duty. Both themes played a key role in the development of Chinese civilization. The geography influences the civilization. Long distances and physical barriers separate China from Egypt, the Middle East, and India. This isolation contributed to Chinese belief that China was the center of the earth and the sole source of civilization. These beliefs in turn led the ancient Chinese to call their land Shangguo or the Middle Kingdom. Z-H-O-N-G-G-U-O. To the west and southwest of China, brutal deserts and high mountain ranges, the Tian, Shan, and the Himalayas blocked the easy movement of the people. To the southeast, thick rainforests divided China from Southeast Asia. To the north awaited a forbidden desert, the Gobi. To the east lay the vast Pacific Ocean. Despite these formidable barriers, the Chinese did have contact with the outside world. They traded with neighboring people and, in time, Chinese goods reached the Middle East and beyond. More often, the outsiders whom the Chinese encountered were nomadic invaders. Such conquerors, however, were usually absorbed into the advanced Chinese civilization. As the Chinese expanded over an enormous area, their empire came to include many regions. The Chinese heartland lay along the east coast and the valleys of the Huang, or Yellow River, and the Chang River, H-U-A-N-G, C-H-A-N-G, respectively. In ancient times, as today, these fertile farming regions supported the largest populations. Then, as now, the rivers provided water for irrigation and served as a transportation routes. Beyond the heartland heartland are the outlying regions of the Xinjiang, X-I-N-J-I-A-N-G, and Mongolia. These regions have harsh climates and rugged terrain. Until recent times, they were mostly occupied by nomads and subsidence farmers. Nomads repeatedly attacked and plundered Chinese cities. At times, however, powerful Chinese rulers conquered or made alliances with the people of these regions and another outlying region, Manchuria. China also extended its influence over the Himalayan region of Tibet, which the Chinese called Xizang Chinese history began in the Huang River Valley, where Neolithic people learned to farm. As in other places, they need to control the flow of the river through large water projects probably led to the rise of a strong central government and the founding of what is sometimes called the Yellow River Civilization. The Huang River got its name from the Loess, or fine wind blown yellow soil, that it carries eastward from Siberia and Mongolia. Long ago, the Huang River earned a bitter nickname, quote, River of Sorrows. As Loess settles to the river bottom, it raises the water level. Chinese peasants labored constantly to build and repair dikes to prevent the river from overflowing. If the dikes broke, floodwaters burst over the land. Such disasters destroyed crops and brought mass starvation. About 1766 BC, however, the first Chinese dynasty for which scholars have found solid evidence arose in a corner of northern China. This dynasty, the Shang, S-H-A-N-G, would dominate the region until about 1122 BC. Archaeologists have uncovered some of the large palaces and rich tombs of Shang rulers. The evidence indicates that from their walled capital city of Anyang, the Shang emerged to drive off nomads from the northern steppes and deserts. Shang kings probably controlled only a small area. Loyal princes and local nobles governed most of the land. They were likely the heads of an important clan or group of families who claim a common ancestor. In one Shang tomb, archaeologists discovered the burial place of Fu Hao, F U H A U O, wife of the Shang king Wu Ding, W U D I N G. Artifacts show that she owned land and helped to lead a large army against invaders. This evidence suggests that the noble women may have had considerable status during the Shang period. As in early civilizations, the top level of Shang society included the royal family and a class of noble warriors. Shang warriors used leather armor, bronze weapons, and horse-drawn chariots. They may have learned of the chariots from other Asian peoples whom they've interacted with. Early Chinese cities supported a class of artisans and merchants. Artisans produced goods for nobles, including bronze weapons, silk robes, and jade jewelry. Merchants exchanged food and crafts made by local artisans for salt, certain types of shells, and other goods not found in northeastern China. The majority of people in Shang, China were peasants. They clustered together in farming villages. Many lived in thatched-roofed pit houses whose earthen floors were dug several feet below the surrounding ground. Peasants led grueling lives. All family members worked in the fields using stone tools to prepare the ground for planting or to harvest grain. When they were not in the fields, peasants had to repair the dikes. If war broke out between noble families, the men had to fight alongside their lords. In 1122 BC, the battled-hearted Zhou people marched out of their kingdom on the western frontier to overthrow the Shang. They set up the Zhao Dynasty, which lasted until 256 BC. To justify their rebellion against the Shang, the Zhao promoted the idea of the Mandate of Heaven, or the divine right to rule. The cruelty of the Shang king, they declared, had so outraged the gods that they had sent ruin on him. The gods then passed the Mandate of Heaven to the Zhao, who, quote, treated the multitudes of the people well, end quote. The Chinese later expanded the idea of the Mandate of Heaven to explain the dynastic cycle or the rise and fall of dynasties. As long as the dynasty provided good government, it enjoyed the Mandate of Heaven. If the rulers became weak or corrupt, the Chinese believed that Heaven would withdraw its support. Floods, famine, or other catastrophes were signs that a dynasty had lost the favor of Heaven. In the resulting chaos, an ambitious ruler might seize power and set up a new dynasty. His success and strong government showed the people that the new dynasty had won the Mandate of Heaven. The dynastic cycle would then begin again. The Zhao rewarded their supporters by granting them control over different regions. Thus, under the Zhao, China developed into a feudal state. Feudalism, F-E-U-D-A-L-I-S-M, was a system of government in which local lords governed their own lands but owed military service and other forms of support to the ruler. In theory, Zhou Kings ruled China for about 850 years. For about 250 of those years, they actually did enjoy great power and prestige. After the 800 BCs, however... Feudal lords exercised the real power and profited from the lands worked by peasants within their domains. During the Zhou period, China's economy grew. Knowledge of iron working reached China in the 600s BC. As iron axes and ox-drawn iron plows replaced stone, wood, and bronze tools, farmers produced more food. Peasants also began to grow new crops, such as soybeans. Some feudal lords organized large-scale irrigation works, making farming even more productive. Commerce expanded too. The Chinese began to use money for the first time. Chinese copper coins were made with holes in the center so that they could be strung on cords. This early form of money economy made trade easier. Merchants also benefited from new roads and canals that feudal lords constructed. Economic expansion led to the increase in China's population. People from the Huang River heartland advanced in central China and soon began to farm the immense Chang River Basin. As well, feudal nobles expanded their territories and encouraged peasants to settle in the conquered territories. In 256 BC, China was a large, wealthy, and highly developed center of civilization. Yet the Zhao Dynasty was too weak to control feudal lords, who ignored the emperor and battled one another in savage wars. Out of these wars rose a ruthless leader who was determined to impose political unity. His triumphs brought an end to the Zhao Dynasty and ushered in the Qin Dynasty, Q-I-N. Religious Beliefs Developed in Early China By Shang times, the Chinese had developed complex religious beliefs, many of which continued to be practiced for thousands of years. The early Chinese prayed to many gods and nature spirits. Chief among them was the supreme god Shangdi, S-H-A-N-G-D-I. The king was seen as a link between the people and Shangdi. Gods, as great as Shangdi, the Chinese believed, would not respond to the pleas of mere mortals. Only the spirits of the greatest people, such as the ancestors of the king, could possibly get the ear of the gods. Thus, the prayers of rulers and nobles to their ancestors were thought to serve the community as a whole, ensuring such benefits as good harvests or victory in war. At first, only the royal family and other nobles had ancestors important enough to influence the gods. Gradually, other classes shared in these rituals. The Chinese called on the spirits of their ancestors to bring good fortune to the family. To honor their ancestors' spirits, they offered them sacrifices of food and other necessities. When Westerners reached China, they mistakenly called the practice ancestor worship. During the late Zhou period, when war and social change were disrupting old ways of life, new belief systems developed that would form the basis of China's culture and government for centuries to come. Thinkers such as Confucius and Laozi put forward ideas on how to restore social order and maintain harmony with nature. Confucius was born in 551 BC to a noble but poor family. A brilliant scholar, Confucius hoped to become an advisor to a local ruler. He studied ancient texts to learn the rules of conduct that had guided the ancestors. For years, he wandered from court to court talking to rulers about how to govern. Unable to find a permanent government position, he turned to teaching. As his reputation for wisdom grew, he attracted many students. Like two other influential thinkers who lived about the same time, Siddhartha Gautama in India and Socrates in Greece, Confucius never wrote down his ideas. Rather, his students collected many of his sayings in the analytics, A-N-A-L-E-C-T-S. Unlike the Buddha, Confucius took little interest in spiritual matters such as salvation. Instead, he developed a philosophy or system of ideas that was concerned with worldly goals, especially those of ensuring social order and good government. Confucius taught that harmony resulted when people accepted their place in society. He stressed five key relationships, ruler to subject, parent to child, husband to wife, elder brother to younger brother, and friend to friend. Confucius believed that, except for friendship, none of these relationships were equal. For example, he felt that older people were superior to younger ones, and men were superior to women. According to Confucius, everyone had duties and responsibilities. Superiors should care for their inferiors and set a good example, while inferiors owed loyalty and obedience to their superiors. Correct behavior, Confucius believed, would bring order and stability. Confucius put filial piety, or respect for parents, above all other duties. Other Confucian values included honesty, hard work, and concern for others. Quote, do not do to others, he declared, what you do not wish yourself, End quote. Confucius also taught that it was a ruler's responsibility to provide good government. In return, the people would be respectful and loyal subjects. Confucius said the best ruler was a virtuous one who led people by good example. In addition, Confucius believed that government leaders and officials should be well-educated. By nature, men are pretty much alike, he said. It is learning and practice that set them apart. He urged rulers to take the advice of wise and educated men. In the centuries after Confucius died, his ideas influenced many aspects of Chinese life. Chinese rulers relied on Confucian ideas and chose Confucian scholars as officials. The Confucian emphasis on filial piety bolstered traditional customs such as reverence for ancestors. Confucianism also included a long-lasting Chinese belief that the universe reflected a delicate balance between two forces, yin and yang. Yin, Y-I-N was linked to Earth darkness, and female forces, while Yang, Y-A-N-G, stood for heaven, light, and male forces. To the Chinese, the well-being of the universe depended on maintaining balance between yin and yang. For example, the king should make the proper sacrifices to heaven while also taking practical steps to rule well. As Chinese civilization spread, hundreds of millions of people in Korea, Japan, and Vietnam accepted Confucius' beliefs. Nearly one-third of the world's population came under the influence of these ideas. Laozi, or Old Master, is said to have lived at a time Confucius and to have founded a philosophy called Taoism, D-A-O-I-S-M. Although little is known about Laozi, he had been credited with writing the Tao De Jing, or The Way of Virtue, spelled D-A-O-D-E-J-I-N-G a book that had enormous influence on Chinese life. Unlike Confucianism, Taoism was not concerned with bringing order to human affairs. Instead, Taoists sought to live in harmony with nature. Laozi stressed that people should look beyond everyday cares to focus on the Tao, or the way, of the universe. The Tao, he explained, has hard to understand fully or put into words. Thus, he taught, quote, those who know the Tao do not speak of it. Those who speak of it do not know of it. End quote. To know the Tao, one should reject conflict and strife. Taoists stress the simple ways of nature and the virtue of yielding. Water, they pointed out, does not resist, but rather yields to outside pressure, yet it is an unstoppable force. Many Taoists turned from the unnatural ways of society. Some became hermits, artists, or poets. Daoists viewed government as unnatural and, therefore, the cause of many problems. If the people are difficult to govern, Lao Tzu declared, it is because those in authority are too fond of action." To Daoists, the best government was one that governed the least. Although scholars kept Taoism's original teachings, the philosophy also evolved into a popular religion with gods, goddesses, and magical practices. Chinese peasants turned to Taoist priests for charms to protect them from unseen forces. In addition, people gradually blended Confucian and Taoist teachings. Although the two belief systems differed, people took beliefs and practices from each. Confucianism showed them how to behave. Taoism influenced their view of the natural world. The people of Shang and Zhao China were known for numerous cultural achievements. For example, Shang astronomers studied the movement of planets and recorded eclipses of the Sun. Their findings helped them develop an accurate calendar with 365 and a quarter days. In addition, the Chinese also improved the art and art technology of bronze making, producing stunning bronze weapons with ritual vessels covered with intricate decorations. By 2640 BC, the Chinese had made a discovery with extremely long-lasting impact. They had learned how to make silk thread from the cocoons of silkworms. Soon, the Chinese were cultivating both silkworms and the mulberry trees on which they fed. Women did the laborious work of tending the silkworms and processing the cocoons into thread. They then wove silk threads into a smooth cloth that was colored with brilliant dyes. Only royalty and nobles could afford robes made from this luxurious silk. In time, silk became China's most valuable export. To protect their control of this profitable trade item, the Chinese kept the process of silk making a secret for many hundreds of years. Written Chinese took shape at least 4,000 years ago, if not earlier. Some of the oldest examples are found on oracle bones. These are animal bones or turtle shells on which Shang priests wrote questions addressed to the gods or to the spirit of an ancestor. Priests then heated each bone or shell until it cracked. They believed that by interpreting the pattern of cracks, they could provide answers or advice from the ancestors. Over time, a writing system evolved that includes tens of thousands of characters or written symbols. Each character represents a whole word or idea. To write a character requires a number of different brush or pen strokes. In the past century, the Chinese have simplified their characters, but Chinese remains one of the most difficult languages to learn to read and write. A person must memorize several thousand characters to read a newspaper. By contrast, languages such as English or Arabic, which are based on an alphabet, contain only about two dozen symbols that represent basic sounds. Although it was complex, this written language fostered unity in early China. People in different parts of China often could not understand one another's spoken language, but they all used the same system of writing. Not surprisingly, in earlier times, only the well-to-do could afford the years of study needed to master the skills of reading and writing. Working with brush and ink, Chinese scholars later turned writing into an elegant art form called calligraphy. C-A-L-L-I-G-R-A-P-H-Y Under the jiao, the Chinese made the first books. They bound thin strips of wood or bamboo together and then carefully drew characters on the flat surface with a brush and ink. Among the greatest Jew workers is the lovely Books of Songs. Many of its poems describe such events in the lives of farming people as planting and harvesting. Others praise kings or describe court ceremonies. The book also includes tender or sad love songs. For the rest of the notes, please study Section 5, Chapter 3, Strong Rulers Unite China. I took the liberty of writing the notes for you. Please uh, utilize those notes for your long essay as well as future uh, module activities.